Thanks, Jordan. Thank you. Well, good morning, Bemidji Crossroads Church. I, I'm so thrilled to be here this morning. And uh, as a guest speaker, it always takes a while for you to get adjusted to me and for me to kind of get a span of who you are as a church. Um, but before I talk about you as a church, I want to talk just a little bit about this community, Bemidji, Minnesota. I just think it is probably one of the uh, diamonds in the rough as it relates to just an incredible, beautiful place that God has created on earth. And uh, Bemidji, Bemidji is special to me because as a kid, uh, my wife and I, we grew up in northwest Montana, but my family roots go back to eastern North Dakota, northeastern North Dakota, Grand Forks area. And growing up as a kid, uh, I remember several summers pulling our pop-up camper, mom and dad, my older brother, my younger sister, over here to Bemidji State Park. And uh, last night, I saw my good old friend Paul Bunyan, and he's still got that blue ox with him. And he's decorated with Christmas lights, and so I had to take a pic and uh, had to send that to my family as a memory. Uh, but Bemidji has, uh, a lots of, it has a part of our history and me growing up. Last summer, uh, I was able to get one of my sons away from his work for a week, and we pulled our camper up here, spent a whole week uh, camping up at uh, the park on the lake here and connecting and uh, just having a great time here in this community. Pastor John and Erica, they are good friends to my wife, Vicki, and myself, and I've been after John, asking him for any opportunity when he might be out of the pulpit if I could help him in any way uh, to preach for him. And so the call came a number of weeks ago, and I just want to say thank you to him and uh, just a great opportunity to be here. I'm also having the privilege of connecting with Pastor Jordan, and uh, Pastor Jordan and I go back to uh, North Dakota days and uh, him being on staff in Williston, and uh, I was lead pastor at Bismarck Assembly of God for a number of years. And uh, I want to say my condolences to you and Josh, the passing of your dad, a uh, good friend of ours as a pastor friend in Carrington and in Wapaton City and uh, Watford City and uh, all kinds of connections that we have here, and I'm just uh, grateful for the opportunity. Um, today is the last Sunday of a year, and I know what's been mentioned already a little bit is uh, we're moving into a new year. And this message that I want to give and share with you this morning is not specifically a New Year's message, but... It's a message that as I was reflecting and putting it together, it was really a good uh, message for me as I take advantage of leaving this year of 2018 and we move into a brand new year of 2019. What's important for us to do is to look back in this year that we've gone through and, and thank God for the good things, but also know that uh, if we're not careful, we can carry some baggage into a new year that God doesn't want us to carry into a brand new fresh year. And uh, I had uh, some difficult things happen in my life in 2018. Probably the worst day of my life came uh, on May, 21st, May 25th of this year when I uh, got the news that my older brother, just a couple years older than me, had suddenly passed away of a sudden heart attack. And so our family experienced death, traumatic death this year. And uh, so 2018 has its ups and it has its downs. And I, I'm not sure what you carry with you into church on this last Sunday of 2018, but God is here by His Holy Spirit, and I've been ministered to this morning, listening to the beautiful harmony of these two brothers leading us in worship this morning, and my heart is uh, deeply strengthened by what God is doing in my life. I have the great privilege at this time in, in my life to 
to leave the pastoring, the world of pastoring after 30 years of pastoring in Wisconsin and North Dakota. Five years ago, uh, uh, I was given the invitation to come back to my alma mater, North Central University, and, and begin pastoring and, and pouring my life into the next generation of pastors and youth pastors and children's pastors and students at our school that are planning to go into business and, and education and all of which they want to do it for God. They want to do it to the best of their ability. They want to do something God, big for God, whether it be in the church or in the community or in the mission field. And it's a great honor to be able to be in that place. But one of the things that I love doing along with that is I love being in the local church and to have this opportunity to speak to people. And I've been praying for you these last several weeks. I, I don't think I know any of you. Now, some of you might come up to me afterwards and we might make a connection that we do know each other from some connection. But I know that as I was praying, God, I don't know, I don't know any of those people. I know Jordan and I know Pastor John and Erica, but I don't know anybody else. But God, you know these people and you know what they're going through and you know what they're carrying and you want to speak to them. And so in the time of singing and in the time of message, God, may you just touch them in a special way so that when they leave church on December 30th, 2018, when they leave that service, they'll know that they're going into a new year with a fresh touch of God upon their lives. And so that's been my prayer and that's been my hope. And as I was asking God, what would you have me to speak to them about? Uh, he gave me the concept to, to introduce the message with the, with the concept of of, of the underdog. How many of you love an underdog? Raise your hands. You just love the story of the underdog. It might be your story. You might be the underdog. You might be the person which everybody said they'll never make it. They're never going to do it. It's never going to happen. Or you've read the story, or you've gone to the movie, or you've read something in scripture that depicts the story of an underdog. And we love stories of underdogs. The definition of the underdog is this, one who is expected to lose the contest, one who is expected to not get the victory. The underdog is the person who is at the disadvantage. I mean, think of all the underdogs of history, people that you never would have expected to succeed, but they succeeded. I think of Abraham Lincoln, think of all the underdogs of of, of the lineage of our presidents, he was an underdog, raised in a, in a log house in Illinois and had no formal education beyond the fourth grade or such. And, and yet this man with no education, no, no pedigree in his background, has this aspiration to get a college degree and becomes a lawyer. And, and becoming a lawyer, he decides, I want to go into public office. And he and he attempts to gain election in the public office. And how many times does he try and how many times does he fail? Several times. It's only by happenstance, in a sense, that he finally finds himself in the office of the President of the United States. And perhaps without question, the greatest president that took us through our greatest season of turmoil through the Civil War. Think of underdogs of like that. And you think of under... I think of... I was thinking of Bemidji, and I was thinking about what analogy would be a good description of an underdog, and I thought about a team. And the reason it comes to me coming to Bemidji is because Bemidji, in, in some central way, is really one of the hubs of hockey in the United States of America. I mean, the hub of hockey is not in Colorado, and it's not in Minneapolis-St. Paul. It's in the northern woods of Minnesota, like towns like Bemidji. And I think of the 1980 men's hockey team that took gold at the Olympics. 
And you remember the miracle on ice. They win that great contest with the Soviet Union in the semifinals. And back in 1980, they were still uh, only allowing on the men's hockey team college athletes. Okay, the all-stars of all the various colleges with D1 hockey programs. And so our amateurs were up against the professionals in the Soviet Union. And every time in the Olympics, we'd get hammered by them. But on 1980, the miracle on ice took place. And those college athletes beat those professionals. And you know the story. So the underdog. The underdog has a way of capturing our attention. And I think in part because we all from time to time consider ourselves to be an underdog. You might be highly educated and you might have all the talent in the world. But there are places in your own identity where you feel overwhelmed and underprepared for what you know that you are called to do. Or you might not have an education, or you may not have the athletic ability, or you may not have the family pedigree, and it's the story of your life, feeling as though you are the underdog. We all relate to the concept of the underdog because there's a battle that all of us are involved in that none of us in our own strength have the ability to gain victory over, and that is the battle that we have against the enemy of our souls. That the devil in all of his forces seeking to kill and steal and destroy us. You perhaps have heard that we shouldn't be afraid of the devil because of God in our lives. And that's true. Because Jesus who lives inside of us is greater than he who is in the world. And that's the theme of the message I want to bring to you from 1 John 4, 4. That greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Look at it with me, 1 John 4, 4 through 6. The scripture says this, that you dear children are from God and have overcome them because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Look on with it as it continues on in verse 5. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth from the spirit of falsehood. There are some things that I want to bring to our attention that, that really spin off of this great passage that perhaps you have memorized if you've been following the Lord for any season of time. 1 John 4, 4, it's just this classic verse that says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. If you're going to fight the devil in your own power and in your own strength, you are an underdog and you're not going to win. But the good news is that someone lives inside of us. Someone lives inside of us by his power that enables us to overcome anything that might come against us. And that's the good news that we have in our lives. Now, from this little verse, I want to just bring three concepts to your attention. And I think you might have some handout notes. And if you want to fill in some blanks, you can kind of stay alive by uh, filling in some blanks with me. The first word I just want to bring to your attention in this passage is the word origins. You, dear children, are from God. John the Apostle is the writer of this passage of Scripture, and he is writing to people like you and to me, to people who go to church and are following God. We have a relationship with Jesus. And he's speaking to people who have made confession of faith in Christ, that Jesus is their Lord, the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of them, and it has produced this concept called salvation. Salvation that transforms us into a person who has a relationship with Jesus. This living relationship through which the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, who is the power of God on earth today. The Holy Spirit is God's power on earth. 
And that power is not in organizations, and that power is not in power plants, but that power is in people like you and me who have said, yes, Jesus is my Lord and he is my Savior. And this creates a foundation that puts us in this category of people who are called children of God. And John describes us as being from God. This is our origin. That when we come to faith in Christ, we become attached to the origin of who we belong to. That we are gods. Now we never never stray far from our origins. Origins represent our beginning. Where we came from and who we come from. The truth of the matter is we never stray far from that origin. Origin like... It's like DNA, and you and I, we have physical DNA, and the physical DNA is inside every muscle, every bone, every, every cell, every, every muscle, every part of your physical being has your DNA. But it's your spiritual DNA that is even more an identifier of who you are. Because your DNA not only represents where you're from or who you're related to physically, but your spiritual DNA represents who you belong to who you belong to so i just have a question as we kind of get this message rolling who do you belong to who do you belong to as you look back on 2018 be honest with yourself how has 2018 panned out and how have you lived 2018 and how has it reflected who you belong to do you feel like you belong to your job Do you feel like you belong to a boss who tells you what to do and when to do it? Do you feel like you belong to a substance that has control over you? Do you feel like you belong to a bad habit that you can't get over? Do you feel like you belong to a strong, uh, dominating person in your life? Who do you belong to? I want to challenge and encourage you and remind you that ultimately you belong to the Father. You belong to God. second word I want you to think about is this word, struggle. Verse 4 says, you dear children are from God and have overcome them. I want you to think for a moment. If life did not consist of struggles, this word overcome wouldn't be in this verse. If life didn't consist of struggles, I don't care who you are, where you come from, how much money you have, how strong you are physically or mentally or even emotionally or even spiritually, we all have struggles. Struggle is a part of life. And so the question that I have for you is not only who, who, who do you belong to, but what are you struggling with? What, what are some things in your life that you struggle to get on top of and to stay on top of? What are some things that if you don't, if you don't focus on it, it kind of it gets into the nooks and crannies of your life and before long, you're doing that thing again. You're bound to that thing again. You're struggling with that thing again. So what is it that you're struggling with? And then look at the word listening. Verse 6 says this, that they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. But we are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. There are a lot of voices in our world. There's a lot of messages in our world, which means careful listening is critical to how well we live this life and how well we will do in 2019. If there are a lot of voices and if there are a lot of messages, who are you listening to? That's the third question. Who are you listening to? Whose voice have you been most tuned to? And as a result, you've been influenced by that voice. Is it the voice of 
politics? Is it the voice of economics? Is it the voice of sports? Is it the voice of popularity? Is it the voice of a chemical? Is it the voice? What is the voice that you've been listening to? Maybe it's the voice of your career. Maybe it's the voice of your 401k or your business or your financial portfolio. What is the voice you're listening to? Now, with that as a backdrop, that life is kind of like an underdog experience, that life is not without its struggles and life is not without its temptations and voices, the good news is this, God doesn't leave us as orphans. He doesn't leave us on our own. God is not the God who in a sense says to us, hey, yeah, I created the world, I created you, I've given you your gifts, I've given your abilities, I've given you this wonderful world in which to make it work, I've given you creativity, I've given you everything that you need to get through life. Now if you need any personal help from me, uh, sorry I'm not in that business anymore. I'm just kind of this cosmic deity that has created everything and I've spun it into existence, but I'm not really available to help you in any personal way. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not like that. In fact, I want you to listen to the words of the Apostle John, the individual that we're looking at in his letter, 1 John, but notice what he says in his gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, he writes in chapter 14, Jesus saying this, Ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you, to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and he will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans. Now you might not be an actual orphan. But all of us, due to our personal sin, we are spiritual orphans. And that is why we celebrated Christmas just last week. This concept of Christmas, the the remembrance, the celebration that God left heaven and came to earth. That this celebration of this theological concept called the incarnation, that God is with us. In fact, one of the names of God, Emmanuel, that we often refer to in this Christmas season. God with us. God came to where we are. We're not alone. We're not orphaned. We're not on our own to try to figure out how do I get on top of these issues that often make me feel like an underdog. Scripture tells us that we never have to be underdogs again. Because greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. So the truth of this scripture, that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. You might say that to a friend that you're witnessing to. You might have a friend or a neighbor or a co-worker and they ask you why you go to church and they ask you why you always have a smile on your face. They ask you why you're able to overcome all the difficulties that they know that you're going through and they say to themselves and they say to you, how are you getting through this? And you simply say, 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. And then they say to you though, Okay, I get it, but what is, he, what, is, what is he greater than? Greater than what? Get practical, get real with me. I don't want to write, I want you to follow three things that are practical, that we take this, this theological truth that greater is he that is in us, and we say to ourselves, well, what practical help is God able to give me? What is he greater than? There's three things. Number one, he's greater than our habits. He's greater than our habits. Now, for every one of these things that God is greater than, he's given us a responsibility to respond. 
So it's one thing to say that God is greater than any habit that is owning me, but we have a responsibility to engage that power to, get overcome, to overcome this habit. And here's how I want to phrase it. I have to own my habits. I have to own my habits, which simply means I've got to admit it. I've got to admit it. So go back to the question I asked you just a few minutes ago. What are you struggling with? I'm not going to ask anybody to stand up and give a testimony of all the deep, bad habits that they've got going on in their life. But you know what they are. I know what they are in my life. I know the things that I have a tendency to drift towards if I'm not intentional in pursuing Jesus. And when I fall away towards that habit that I know is not godly, this power that is in me is reduced. Not because God's power is reduced, It's because I'm not engaging in my responsibility. I've got to own my habit. So I want you to be honest with yourself. And I know, I'm a guest. I may never come back here, and so you're never going to see me again, and so I'm going to get up close and personal, maybe step on a few toes. And I guess that's what evangelists do. But you know what I mean. We all have things that we struggle with. But we have to own that habit. How do we do that? Well, Matthew 5, 3, Jesus is preaching his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And within that Sermon on the Mount, it begins with what is called the Beatitudes. Several descriptions of what it means to be a person who's blessed by God. And the very first Beatitude, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means many, many things, but we could summarize it to simply mean this. Being poor in spirit is is an ability... To be able to admit my utter need for God. I have an utter need for His mercy, for His grace, for His forgiveness, for His power. And it could be those of you who are brand new believers or someone who's been a Christian for decades. Doesn't matter how long we've followed God. We still have an utter need for His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness and His power. I like how the New Living Translation translates this it says god blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him the contemporary english version says you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope with less of you there's more of god so step number one in actualizing this truth that greater is he that is in me than the devil who's in the world is that i have to own my habits and we do this in three quick ways number one we admit our responsibility Paul was able to do this, and he gives us a great example of this in Romans chapter 7, verses 15, and then 18 and 19. Follow along. Paul says, what I don't understand about myself is this. I decide one way, but then I act another. Doing things I absolutely despise. Verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Listen, friends, I don't know of another passage of Scripture that is as real about life than that one right there, because that's where we all live. There's something good we want to do, we don't do it. There's something bad we know we don't want to do, we shouldn't do, but then that habit just kind of brings us back, and we find ourselves in that hole again. We have to admit that it's our responsibility. Number two, we have to then accept God's grace. Titus 2 11 and 12, Paul writing to a young pastor says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Okay? 
There's grace that appears, and when it appears to us and we say yes to Jesus, we invite him into our life, we are transformed. We are a new creation in Christ. And having been saved freely by God's grace, notice what we do then. That salvation, verse 12, teaches us now to say no to ungodliness. And we say no to worldly passions. And we live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. But we can never, ever even come close to living that godly life without accepting God's grace. God changes our lives. He literally transforms us through the power of grace and mercy. With grace, we understand that God gives us great things that we don't deserve, like His love and His mercy. And not only spiritual things, but I look at all the wonderful things that God has given me materially. That even the breath I breathe, I thank God, it's a gift from you. That all good things come from the Father. And so I don't think anything that is good that I got myself, I didn't earn it myself, it came from God. And that's what God's grace is. God giving us things that we know we don't deserve. And His mercy is God withholding everything that we do deserve, like judgment and condemnation and consequential discipline for every sin that we've ever committed. I think it's going to be interesting when we get to heaven and God's going to show us a videotape of our life and we're going to see all of the close calls that should have come down on us, but God's mercy intervened. And sure, we had to pay consequences for the the sins and the bad decisions we made, but we probably did not feel the full force of those consequences. Why? Because of God's grace and His mercy. The point is this, is that God never shames us to get rid of a bad habit. Did you have that mother or that father or that authority in your life saying, shame on you, shame on you, don't ever do that again? I'm going to tell you that that's not the best parenting technique because shame never changes a person. Shame never changes a person. And unfortunately, there are many, many people who sit in church Sunday after Sunday and you're still under the oppression of shame. Because you're still hearing your mother or your father or your aunt or your uncle or your grandma or your grandpa shaming you for something that you know you shouldn't have done. Let me tell you that God will never shame you out of a bad habit. He will dispense grace on you. He will dispense forgiveness on you. He will dispense mercy on you. He will show to you that as much as you deserve discipline and punishment and you deserve hell, and I do as well, God will shower his love on me. And that becomes this incredible motivation to live the godly life. But I've got to admit my responsibility. I have to accept his grace. And then thirdly, I've got to activate a new routine. I've got to activate a new routine. Some habits need to be broken, but other habits need to be built. You ever think of it that way? See, for every habit that needs to be broken, there has to be a corresponding habit that gets built in our life. It's not just about giving up something that I shouldn't be doing. It's about putting something into our life that I should be doing. And without that replacement issue, what happens is that we become this this unoccupied life. This unoccupied life that becomes even more susceptible to greater habits down the road. Every dieter knows that. We start a diet, we lose a few pounds, and then we lose our resolve, and then we gain it all back plus a few more. 
Every alcoholic understands that. Every person addicted to pornography understands that. We can have that great resolve for a while, but because we don't replace that habit with something godly and something powerful, that which comes back into us is even stronger. Jesus talked about it in Luke 11, starting verse 24. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes to arid places seeking to find rest and doesn't find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes out and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go and live there, and the final condition is worse than the first. Listen, folks, the unoccupied life is a dangerous life. It's not about the power to kick a bad habit. It's the power to start a better habit. That's where the power is. So how would you like to occupy your life this year? I'll tell you something that I'm doing in the first 30 days of 2019. My son is a pastor in a local church in Minneapolis. And he's decided to challenge the young adults of his congregation to join him in a 30-day Bible reading program on version, And the Bible reading program is called Shred. It's a 30-day journey from Genesis to the end of Revelation. 30 days through all of the scripture in 30 days. And I've joined, I've joined it. Now, it's not because I need to kick a bad habit, but I want to get more of God in me. And I'll tell you what's going to happen. For those of us that are going to kind of climb this mountain, 30 days through the whole Bible, uh, what we're going to have to do is, we're not reading anything for 30 days, but scripture. <laughs> Now, I love to read, and I read commentaries, and I read devotionals, and I read biographies, and I read the newspaper, and I read Facebook, and all those things. I know for 30 days, I'm going to take every hour of my typical reading, and I'm going to be reading Scripture. Because I want more of God in me. I want to reestablish and strengthen this, this habit of reading God's Word. And if you have some habits that you want to get rid of, Maybe you need to focus less on kicking the bad habit and you need to focus more on starting the new godly habit. All right, so if we're going to be the underdog, God wants to help us. Greater is he that is in us. And one of the things we are strong to get over are bad habits. The second thing God wants to get us over are our hurts. Our hurts. But we have a responsibility to access that power to get over our hurts. And that is this. We have to offset our hurts. Offset. How do you offset the hurts that you've experienced in life? You see, you can't erase your hurt, and you can't pretend it doesn't hurt, and you can't ignore your hurt. You can't even, I dare say, even pray your hurt away. Now, that's not to say I don't believe that God can deliver you from your hurt. But if you have the mistaken idea that if you'll just pray hard enough that your hurt will go away, you're probably going to be mistaken. Now, you should pray. And you should pray, and you should pray. You should be here for those nights of prayer as you begin another great habit of prayer in the first week of January. But that doesn't just make those hurts go away. See, we have to be real about the hurts that are deep in our lives. And being real is understanding that we have to do some things internally in order for God to bring that healing. And let me give you three suggestions. Number one, you need to audit your anger. You need to audit your anger. You need to audit your anger. Look what it says in Genesis 4, verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will not be, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, listen, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, 
and you must rule over it. Ruling over anger is not like dominating, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill that anger inside of me. Ruling over our anger is like, is like what we do with our habits. We admit it. We admit that it's there so that we can properly audit it, investigate it, evaluate it. Now, do you know how spiritual people disguise their anger? When I say spiritual people, I'm talking about people like you and me who are in church all the time. We disguise our anger by calling it passion. We disguise our anger by calling it righteous indignation. Let me suggest this, folks. Just call it for what it is. Because anger is not sinful. Being angry is, if you're angry, you're not sinning. Why don't you just say, hey, what you said about me, that makes me angry. What you just did, that makes me angry. It's okay to be angry. Jesus was angry. The problem is when we disguise it or we hide it, we, 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 we push it aside and then it burrows inside of our spirit and we become bitter and we become vengeful and we actually begin thinking murderous thoughts in our minds and Jesus says that's as, worse, that's as bad as murder itself. So don't, don't kick yourself for being angry. Just understand what it is and deal with it properly. Audit it. And then what you do in terms of this hurt is you have to accept your loss. You have to accept your loss. Martha said to Jesus when he finally arrived, late, Jesus, if you'd been here, I know my brother would not have died. Now, if you're not familiar with the situation, Jesus had two, had, was close in relationship with two sisters, Mary and Martha. They had a brother named Lazarus. And as Jesus is ministering, messenger comes to Jesus and says, hey, your good friend Lazarus is on his deathbed. They need you. And what does Jesus do? He went golfing. He went fishing. He did other things. He wasn't in a hurry to get there. And in his lack of hurry, Lazarus dies. Jesus finally arrives. And Mary is angry. Mary is very upset. Jesus, if, you'd, if you had been here, he would have lived. Now, this is the greatest understatement of all time, actually, because, of course, if Jesus had been there, Lazarus would have been healed. Because Jesus can do anything. Jesus can do anything. But the problem is Jesus doesn't always heal us immediately of our hurt. We live in a world of hurt. This isn't heaven yet. This is earth. And so bad things happen to good people. And unfortunate things happen and we can't explain it all. But we live in a dangerous world. And we live in a world where there is hurt on our lives. And the best thing that you can do in the last Sunday of 2018 is identify that in fact you are hurting. And let God help you. One of the ways that he wants to help us is for us to grab a hold of a, a very important theological concept. And it's called sovereignty. Sovereignty. That God's sovereignty, that he's in control. The world might be spinning out of control. You might be out of control. The kids might be out of control. Your addiction might be out of control. The government might be out of control. And on and on and on and on. But God's in control. You see, theology really can heal us. Theology, this awareness of what is ultimately true, 
And so we accept our loss knowing that God is still sovereign. And then thirdly, we advance our faith. If we're going to get over our hurt, we have to advance our faith. Look at Jude chapter 1, verse 20. You, dear friends, build yourselves up. That means a directional priority. If you're hurting, you need to lift your eyes up. See, when we're hurting, we want to look down. We want to be downcast. We want to be sullen. We want to, we want to, be, we want to mope around. We want to be eors of life. And God says, I want you to look up. I want you to build up this faith that you have in God. Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. And the Bible writer says he went down to Joppa. Abram, in the midst of a famine, the scripture says he went down to Egypt to live there. Both of those scenarios, the writer is telling us that down indicates a bad direction. We don't want to go down. We want to go up. And so if you're hurting, look up. Build up your most holy faith. That is what we'd call a determined purity. That when you're hurting, you are determined to stay pure before God. Your most holy faith. Not your half holy faith, not your some holy faith, but your most holy faith. And then Jude writes, pray in the Spirit. Paul writes in Ephesians 6.18, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. And then lastly, there needs to be a deliberate possession. Because Jude writes to us again, Dear children, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit and keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus to bring you to eternal life. So, greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world to help us overcome our bad habits, to help us overcome the deep hurts in our life. And then lastly, God's greater power in us helps us overcome our hang-ups. Now follow this, the power of Jesus is greater to help us overcome our addictions, our compulsions, our tendencies. Those are the bad habits. God's power in us is greater than our anger. It's greater than our bitterness. It's greater than our unforgiveness, which means it's greater than our hurt. And then finally, God's power in us is greater than our shame. It's greater than all the bad memories. Greater than all of the heavy grief that sits upon us, which means that God's greater power in us is greater than our hang-ups. What hangs you up? What, what has you high-centered? It's like you've driven into a snowbank and you've loosened up the wheels, but you can't get out because the body of the car is high-centered. And your legs are moving, and you're in church, and you're praying, and you're doing all that Christians do, but you're high-centered. There's something that's hung you up. I don't know what it is for you, but God knows what it is. And He's here to set you free. He's here to speak something into your life that gets the wheels on the ground and gets you moving forward. I can think of one passage of Scripture, it'll be the last one that I look at this morning, uh, that without question is the most powerfully depicting the the incredible love of Jesus in John chapter 8, where it says this, starting in verse 2, at dawn, Jesus appeared before the temple courts where all the people were gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, 
This woman was caught in the act of adultery. Not just accused of adultery, not just all the evidence pointing to adultery, but she was caught in the act. These teachers of the law say, Jesus, in the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such a woman. What do you say? And this has put Jesus in between a rock and a hard place. Because Jesus can't say anything that would contradict God's word. But neither can he contradict the nature and the character that is within him that to show love and mercy and grace. So what does Jesus do? says that he bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. A lot of theologians are wondering, I wonder why he stooped down to write. What, what did he write? And John doesn't tell us what he wrote, so it, it's not important what he wrote. We don't know why he would stoop down, but it could be that in that stooping and writing, you know, doodling in the sand, he's, maybe he's praying to the Father, Father, guide me in this. They kept questioning him, verse 7 says, and he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he began writing on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, then the younger. Until only Jesus was left and the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one. And he said, Neither do I condemn you. That's God speaking to you today. That's the Holy Spirit echoing these words spoken 2,000 years ago. Those words spoken 2,000 years ago are still echoing decade after decade, century after century, millennium after millennium, the words of Jesus being spoken to you today. Neither do I condemn you. That's God's word to you about that habit that shames you, that demoralizes you. That hurt that was placed on you by someone and you are so angry and you just want them to die and you know that's not right and you're shamed by it and God says, I'm not condemning you. That hang up, a bad decision in your past, how you broke off a relationship or how you did something that was an injustice to another person and you are shamed by it and God is saying to you in this service, don't carry it one more day because I'm not condemning you. And he says to this woman, and he does say to us, greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. You can leave this place and you can leave that sin. You can leave it right here. And I can help you to never do that again. That you not only are set free in grace and mercy, but you are set free behaviorally. You don't have to do that. That has, don't, don't have to hang over you anymore. I want you to close your eyes as I pray for you and then Pastor Jordan will close our service in this scenario that comes from John chapter 8 
Many of you are familiar with it. There's four key players in this scenario. I want you to just think with me as you, as, you, as you let the Holy Spirit speak to you. We've got a woman who's been caught. and Maybe it's not adultery that you were caught in, but you've been caught doing something, guilty of something, and it comes to your memory right now. You've got the man who was also caught with her, but he's missing, and we've played that role too. Someone else got caught and we got away with it. But we still live with the effect of guilt and shame. You've got the crowd that is passing judgment and we've been in that role as well. Relishing the fact that people are getting what they deserve. But the role that is most important is not the woman, it's not the man, it's not the religious leaders in the crowd. The most important figure in this episode is Jesus the forgiver, the one who gives grace. I want you to know that he is right here at Crossroads Church in this very service. Greater is he. The greaterness of Jesus in your life is not about comic book hero strengths, but it's about a spiritual power that comes through your character and your integrity and, and your desire to live for God, even though you have a past that disqualifies you. You're here this morning and you say, Doug, I'm so glad God brought you to, to church here because what you're saying, what God is saying, he's saying something through you that I need to hear and I know that I've got something that I need to get forgiven. I know that I've got a habit or I've got a tendency that I just need to give to God. I, I thank you, God, for bringing this speaker because there's a hurt that goes deep inside my soul that I've not been able to completely be healed over. I thank you God because there's a hang up that's <coughs> keeping me from my full potential in Christ and I want you to take it and to heal it and to enable me to move into 2019 truly experiencing the greaterness of God who lives in us. If you're here and you'd like me to pray for you just lift your hand. Just lift your hand if you're here. You say, Doug, pray for me because God is speaking to me and I want God to heal me from my habits and my hang-ups and my hurts that I want to be free from. And you say, Doug, pray for me. Just slip your hand in the air real quick. I won't embarrass you. I'm not going to call you forward. Yep, several hands, several hands. Father, I pray for these precious people at this church, Crossroads Church in Bemidji, Minnesota. I pray for the individuals that lift their hands, that you, oh God, by the power of your spirit, would set them free, that you would heal them, that you would enable them to experience this sense of the Holy Spirit downloading into them. The greater is he power. The greater is he strength. The greater is he forgiveness. The greater is he wonderful mercy that pours into their life. I ask you to bless them and to touch them. And as a congregation, oh God, raise up this congregation of people to make an effect in this community because there's so many people in this community that are lost and they're far from God and they're hurting and habits are destroying their life and hurts are eroding their, their inner quality of life and the hang-ups that they can't get help from, Lord, it's keeping them from truly experiencing the life that you came to give, a life full. And so I pray for that in the name of Jesus. I pray for Pastor John and Erica that you'll protect them and their families. They're enjoying their vacation. Bring them safely back to their church family. And may they be encouraged 
to lead this congregation into a great new year. Father, thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Doug. So I want to encourage you, um, hopefully you filled out those notes, take some time today. Um, Pastor Doug gave us some great tools to um, reflect on this year and, and uh, get after next year for all that God has for us. Amen. So take some time today, this week, look over what you wrote down and just think about what, what you heard today. Um, I don't need to pray for you again. Um, so God bless you. If any of you have a I uh, would like to um, pray, have a prayer need. Um, I believe we will have a prayer team up here uh, that will minister to you. Um, but otherwise, you're dismissed. God bless you. Have a safe and happy new year.